Hello, Heather Knight, and welcome to our Glen Canyon episode, a.k.a. Heather gets to record three blocks from her house. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this scam. Yes, uh, we've been doing a lot of remote recording during the pandemic, which is great. But whenever we don't have an obvious place to meet up, um, I usually say, how about the canyon? And you've been game because you can BART there very easily. So um, we have our spot behind the rec center at the picnic tables. And it's it's awesome. Yeah, and I'm complaining and I'm going to continue to complain. But it is a pretty easy BART to the Glen Park Station and La Corneta, where I conveniently um, forgot that it's cash only this week. And you bought me, <laughs> uh, I think, about half of my tacos. That's all the cash I had. So um, I will not complain today, but this is a scam. <laughs> you got a taco out of it. I did get a taco out of it. It was delicious. Their uh, chorizo is excellent. And our guest today is Evelyn Rose director and founder of the Glen Park Neighborhoods History Project, who I found fascinating. What was your favorite Glen Canyon fact that we learned today? Well, I knew a lot of tidbits, but I didn't have the full story on anything. I knew um, from the big plaque at the front that there was a dynamite factory there, but had no further knowledge about that. Evelyn gave us a ton of information about the factory, including its eventual explosion. Yeah, she was really good about um, hyping up the drama. Um, <laughs> she could write a, a soap opera about there. the canyon. Who knew? Uh, I, I thought going in that Glen Canyon is the most underrated park in San Francisco. How do you balance celebrating your neighborhood versus keeping it a secret, which once our Total SF listeners check out this episode, they're all going to be flooding there. <laughs> the crowds will descend. I promote um, lots of things near me, including La Corneta and walking in the canyon with my endless uh, Twitter photos of Sutro Tower. So it hasn't been a secret for anyone who follows me. I think that people should come and explore the canyon. And it's so huge, 70 acres. There's plenty of space for all of us. A uh, little bit of new business. Our Thursday night sneaker screening will be done before this comes out. We're hungover as you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> thanks to all who bought tickets. Our second sellout since we went live again. Um, we're, we're selling out there. So um, love it that people are coming out. Transit month is coming up. Our first theme month. We'll start really talking about that in earnest next week. And we'll answer another call today from our total SF party line. That's 415-777-7413. Ask us a question. Leave a short message. We may read it on the air which we will at the end of the episode today stick around for that. Yeah, and you could even prompt an entire episode, which is the case with today's show. Um, a caller asked for a episode on Glen Canyon, and like a week or two later, here one is. Yeah, that, that caller did not leave her name, but it was a great question. And look at that. It was like like we're the concierge, you know? <laughs> it's like at the hotel. You order it. It arrives. This episode is for you, caller who asked about Glen Canyon and everyone else. It's a great episode. Stick around for the call at the end. I'm Peter Hartlub here with Heather Knight, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Evelyn Rose, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
Well, we're sitting in one of my favorite places in San Francisco, Glen Canyon. I live nearby and come here all the time with my kids, but I never knew it existed until moving to the neighborhood 12 years ago. How does a 70-acre canyon in the middle of a major international city fly so far under the radar? That, that's the amazing part of all of this, because I have met people over the years who have lived here their entire life, have driven down O'Shaughnessy Boulevard their entire life, happened to come on one of my walking tours and said, I never knew this existed. Even though they were looking across it, <laughs> right. they never thought to look down. So it's, it's difficult to say, I think partly because it is a rather deep gully here. And uh, it's in an area that isn't necessarily heavily traveled until recent years. So yeah. I think that's why I like to say it's this, you know, magical space that's literally in the heart of San Francisco. Right. Yeah. So. Well, we met you at the entrance to the canyon and you have a very sweet dog who's well behaved. Yes. Flanny, right under the Flanny, table here. Yeah. Such a good girl. <laughs> yeah. Our quietest, most well-behaved podcast guest yet. Um, and I know you live about a block away from the canyon. What's your origin story and what brought you to Glen Park originally? Well, you know, I've uh, been living in San Francisco um, almost 45 years, uh, except for a couple of excursions, uh, uh, either to Marin or Napa Valley. But for the most part, I've been in San Francisco. And uh, for a long time, my wife and I were living up in Diamond Heights, and uh, we just happened upon uh, our house for sale one day. And, and then in terms of history, um, I'd been doing some history research in San Francisco. I'd been a docent at Muir Woods for 15 years and started uh, researching San Francisco history. And I kept coming across these amazing Glen Park district stories. And I was like, there really is something there. And it's ended up being such a wonderful journey because the history I have is just so robust. And what do you love about the neighborhood? I love the neighborhood because it does feel like its own little piece of suburbia in the middle of San Francisco. As you can see, there's lots of trees, though it, it didn't used to be that way uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and just everyone here is just so friendly. There's just such a community camaraderie here. And I know everyone in San Francisco probably says that about their neighborhood, but there's something about the Glen Park District that's yeah. special. And shout out to La Corneta. Yes, right. <laughs> we were just there. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Um, we started a Total SF hotline. We call it the Total SF Party Line. 415-777-7413 if you have a question or comment. Uh, <laughs> to get ideas, questions, tips from our readers. We got a great call from a longtime listener who suggested an episode about Glen Canyon, uh, saying that it's been host to a dynamite factory, a zoo, a freeway revolt led by the Gumtree Girls. Uh, we aim to please, so we're here with you today. Um, what's it about this place that makes it such an unusual font of history? And has there been an interest, uh, kind of an uptick in interest in Glen Canyon? I think uh, in, in terms of the uptick in interest, yes. I think once the Glen uh, Canyon Park Recreation Center was refurbished in 2018, it's the oldest rec center in San Francisco. Oh. It was designed by William G. Merchant, who was a protege of Bernard Maybeck. Uh, with that renovation and the upgrade of the playground, that began to draw a few new people to the park. 
But in terms of uh, the completion of the Crosstown Trail uh, that comes right through the canyon, that has brought a whole bunch of new visitors who didn't even know this place existed. And they continue through the canyon, go up over Twin Peaks, over to Mount Sutro. Um, so I think in terms of the history here, it, it's, it was very isolated from the rest of San Francisco until after the earthquake. And of course, the earthquake caused a displacement of about 225,000 people and everyone was trying to find a new place to live. And um, the Glen Park was just starting to show some development. It become popular uh, because of uh, Glen Park and the Mission Zoo in the late 1890s. So that kind of started uh, the migration here. But it's because I think that we have the 70 acres of open space, you know, that really um, is, is a key factor of today drawing a lot of people to the neighborhood. Well, we're so glad you're here. I Thank usually you. am the one doing the history research, and I've got a bunch of notes here. I know nothing, so <laughs> we're relying on you and, and really excited to learn about the history. I'm excited yeah. to share it. Well, we yeah. wondered if you could just give our listeners, you know, a quick, unfortunately, we don't have an hour, however long your tours usually are, but a quick summation of the history, weird and wonderful iterations of Glen Canyon. How far back can you take us? Well, we can probably go as far back as prehistory. We don't have any archeological evidence, but um, there is anecdotal evidence that the Miwok, uh, uh, you know, residents of San Francisco, there were three permanent villages at the mouth of, uh, mouth of Islas Creek that runs uh, right behind us here. It goes underground and- uh, To Silver Tree Nursery School. Yeah, and heads out to uh, the bay. And uh, where it came out at the bay, the amazing wetlands that apparently were uh, extraordinary. Uh, it's all industrial and developed today, but there were three permanent villages out there. And um, there are anecdotal reports of there being um, many sh uh, shell mounds uh, near the BART station mm. where the creek would have been. A former resident who grew up in a house there dug up shells in her backyard as a kid. She's like, where do these shells come from? And she said to me, when I heard you tell the story of how the Miwok were around, that made perfect sense that they may have come here, per, uh, temporary encampment, hunted and foraged here in the canyon. Um, then in 1776, when Deonza expedition came through San Francisco, established the Presidio and Mission, as they departed the city, they came right through what would become basically the uh, Chinnery and Diamond hmm. intersection wow. uh, headed south. And that would be. I hope traffic wasn't as bad for them. I don't then. think so. Though they had to negotiate Isla's Creek, which, <laughs> which apparently could have been quite treacherous at some times. So not much was happening here. What the uh, Spanish did bring were cattle and with uh, uh, Mission Dolores, by the 1840s, it's estimated they had up to 75,000 head of cattle. So even though we may think of Portrero Hill as the pasture for the mission, uh, with 75,000 head, they likely ranged all through the landscape and even probably south of San Bruno Mountain. So this um, is before the dynamite factory. This is before the before dynamite the zoo. factory. <laughs> before the zoo. So, and that started our dairy history that lasted until about 1940 in this canyon. Um, and then in uh, 1868, uh, Alfred Nobel had, uh, was in the process of uh, 
acquiring the patent for dynamite, uh, his invention, and through a friend in Paris, uh, he uh, was able to um, license uh, the product uh, here and establish America's first dynamite factory right here uh, near where the, the recreation center is positioned. Where, where, how big was it? How much dynamite's being made? And how dangerous was it? It was, uh, yeah, it was uh, seven buildings. It was uh, what they called a manufactory that was about 20 by 60 feet. And that's, they made the nitroglycerin from scratch, uh, made the oil. And for uh, the West Coast, that was the supply uh, in the earliest days. Now, Nobel established factories on the East Coast about three months after this one uh, in New Jersey and New York. The manufacturer, after running for 18 months, suddenly exploded uh, oh, wow. in November of 1869. I was waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> we knew there yeah, had to be an explosion That's the dangerous part, yeah. Uh, and sadly, the, the chemist and Teamster were instantly killed. Oh, but, wow. uh, and the Chinese workers were severely injured, taken to Chinatown for care and haven't been able to determine their outcomes. Uh, but there was a lot of um, reporting uh, in the newspapers of the day on the dimensions of the foundations that were left because everything was splintered. There was uh, material, you know, located as much as uh, 150 yards away. Um, the blast was heard downtown. It was near dusk. They also saw a big flash of light downtown, which would be today's financial district. Um, a mile away, windows were blown out. Um, it was a huge explosion, and that was really the oil of nitroglycerin that exploded. But the cartridges themselves, speaking to the stability of having the oil packaged in the clay, did not explode. Um, so anyway, they, uh, yes. I, I have to ask. I'm sorry, the, the way I grew up, I think of dynamite as what like Coyote and Roadrunner used to throw right. at each other. What, what was dynamite needed for back then? Was it the railroads? Conquering it... nature is what they hmm. needed it for because black powder wasn't powerful enough. They needed to blast out forests. They needed to uh, bore through mountains. And as much as they tried, the black powder, you know, it, it was hardly making any progress, the progress that they wanted to see to quote, conquer nature. Well, it looks like nature conquered back. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting in, in this in beautiful way. canyon. Yes, in a way. So so after the explosion, about four months later, they set up a new location out in the avenues, which was all sand dunes then. About four years after that, it exploded. By that time, there were a few more uh, dynamite factories in the city, and the city said, you know, you, you have to go. So they moved over to the East Bay, which is where they all ended up. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then they built a zoo. No? Yeah, <laughs> zoo, 30 years later, not much happened. There were still a lot of cows. Yeah, I'm, um, sh I'm sure the people who were coming in for the zoo were still thinking, oh, yeah, that's the dynamite place. Possibly. It's yeah. hard to say because 30 years later, uh, some, some of them, you know, if they were younger, may not have been uh, born yet. Um, and uh, but the, the zoo came around. Um, starting in 1897 and it was uh started by archibald s baldwin who was i want it noted by the way that flanny came up and started sticking her nose in the mic when you started talking about the zoo this is clearly right, her animals. favorite part she yes. didn't like the dynamite part <laughs> yeah and um 
So he was a realtor. He was one of, of the proprietors of uh, the real estate agency Baldwin and Halt. And uh, his plan here was to sell home lots uh, along what we now call Chenery Street between Diamond and Elk. His plan was nobody's out here but cows. How am I going to get people out here to see the home lots? And so he thought, you know, starting a zoo wow. and a pleasure ground would That's be the clever. way to go. And in 1897, he established the Glen Park Company with the sole mission of running uh, a pleasure ground and zoo, uh, which is how Glen Park got its name. So I... we're actually named for a zoo. We'll be right back after this short break. I, I get a little bit of a, I read a little bit about it and I get a little bit of like a music man vibe from this person, like maybe <laughs> over promising a little bit. He with probably the did. He was trying to go very extravagant. Uh, he hired a landscape architect that, you know, was going to create like a, almost like a, a um, uh, if you've been over to Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland, that was designed by Olmsted. And you have a lot of promenades and roundabouts and just places to nowhere, just so you can be out for your stroll instead. And where was the zoo? Relative well, the way it ended up, the, the whole plan was for the city to adopt this property and it, or one of the other candidates. And in the end, uh, the city didn't go with any of them. So what Baldwin did was downsize his project and, and went for rustic, kind of like today's architecture that you see in national parks. Uh -huh. And so he built a, a lodge and he's basically all of the activity was out on the baseball fields. They had uh, high wire acts. They had aeronauts wow. that would go up in balloons, do trapeze acts, and then come back down on a parachute. I call it Victorian extreme sports. They would attract anywhere from 8,000 to 15,000 people every weekend. Um, the zoo was kind of spread out. There was reportedly a, a bear pit up on Martha Hill, which is just south mm -hmm. of us here. Um, the deer paddock uh, and an aviary were located on the lots he was trying to sell, which I, I'm still trying to figure that out. And then right up here uh, at Elk Street, there was an elk paddock, which is probably why Elk Street is named Elk today. It was always a mystery until I saw his survey map that showed the layout of his 140 acres. And it was very popular. Um, but not surprisingly, he didn't sell home lots. <laughs> uh, and uh, despite the zoo's success, he decided to divest all of his interests uh, by 1901-1902. And the Crocker estate took it over. 1915, there wasn't a lot of activity happening here. And then by about 1920, the Crocker Estate sold this land to the city. For, and it's been and run by the city for about a public. century. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I always thought the zoo failed, but it sounds like the zoo was a success. The plan was a failure. I think the plan was a failure. And another thing, too, one of the aeronauts, uh, the Baldwin supplied the balloons. There was a Glen Park balloon, had Glen Park on the side of it. And one day uh, the balloon apparently didn't inflate all the way and the young aeronaut crashed and was severely injured and died. Um, and so his father sued the Glen Park Company oh. right about the time Baldwin is divesting. And because between that and not selling home lots, 
um, probably because who would want 10,000 people marching across your front yard every Sunday just to get to the activities? You know, it's no wonder why he didn't sell home lots. <laughs> so, so, the, so that's when he divested himself. So there was the dynamite accident. Was there any comparable zoo accident? Well, the aeronaut accident. Well, we had the aeronaut accident, <laughs> but I'm thinking like a bear mauling or, you know. <laughs> There I'm was, trying to figure out how cursed this is. There was a peacock that is. kept escaping that the police had <laughs> I did not see that coming. Yeah, yeah. He, the peacock would somehow hike the fence. And there's two or three reports during those years of the police having to bring the peacock back because the peacock was on the loose. <laughs> and then um, one of the most famous things that happened here is something that didn't happen, which was there was a big plan for a freeway cutting right through the center of the canyon, and three women nicknamed the Gumtree Girls fought it. Can you give us like the minute version of what happened there? Sure. Uh, there was a plan by the San Francisco uh, uh, DPW and also the California Highway Department, that was called at the time, to put what was called the Circumferential Expressway. We would be sitting right under a double-decker freeway had it Whoa. succeeded. Uh, that was intended to be a shortcut to the Golden Gate Bridge. And when it was first proposed in 1958, the predecessor of the Gumtree Girls, Minnie Straw Baxter, a, long, a lifelong Glen Park resident, galvanized the neighborhood. She had seen the suffragists in the early days and channeled their moxie uh, to fight back and basically stop the freeway. And then in 1965, uh, one of the Gumtree girls, Zoanne Nordstrom, walking in the canyon with her toddler son and um, saw a man drilling a post hole. And she was like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, this is for the new freeway that's Whoa. coming through. And she said, the hell it is. <laughs> and she went back and got her best friends, Joan Seiwald and Jerry Arkush, all young moms. And together they galvanized the neighborhood and created the Save Glen Park Committee. And over a period of five years, uh, fought back at least three different attempts for the state and the city to force the freeway through. Uh, it was one of the city engineers, Clifford Geertz, who actually derisively named them one day the Gumtree Girls. And Gumtree meaning, you know, we have a lot of eucalyptus here and uh, gum tree, there had been a gum tree grove at Diamond and Chenery planted by one of the early milk ranchers, dairymen in the late 1850s. And so forever, the district was known as the gum tree district. So uh, that's how they got that moniker. And when they heard it, they were like, that's a pretty good name. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to keep it. So uh, well, they, they succeeded. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Were they pre appreciated at the time and honored or... I think as the years have gone by, uh, it's become more so. And uh, uh, Zoe Nordstrom would go on to be president of the Glen Park Association for several years. And um, it was really the neighborhood uh, dynamo for many years. And uh, she passed away last year, unfortunately. Um, and uh, so I think though, as the years have gone by, uh, they have been. We just had a festival about uh, a little over a month ago, the Glen Park Gumtree Girls Festival, to celebrate not only them, but uh, all of the amazing historic women from this district, of which there are at least 20 that I've come across, wow. who each strove to make a difference in their communities uh, using their own specialties in terms of areas of interest and passion. And it's really a remarkable history that we have here. What's your perfect day in Glen Canyon? If we have listeners who have never been here before, where should they start and what should they do? 
They should definitely start uh, at the Elk Street entrance that, uh, near Chenery. Uh, that's the main entrance to the park. You'll see the plaque uh, for the California State Historical Landmark, uh, number 1002, for the first dynamite factory in America that we were able to place the plaque in 2018. Uh, and um, they can progress past this, this amazing recreation center uh, and then around the recreation center, just follow the paths, dip back along into the canyon. You forget sometimes that you're in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And you can walk north all the way through the canyon, come up at Portola Drive, cross, and continue your way up more green space up to the top of Twin Peaks. Uh, and uh, that, that would be my suggestion, a shorter walk, um, is just stay in the base in the canyon. There are opportunities to loop at different times. And if you want something more rigorous, you can go above the canyon on uh, what's called the Coyote Crags trail, trail and follow that as well. In addition to the Glen Park Neighborhoods History Project, you also founded something called Tramps of San Francisco, and you are the chief tramping officer. <laughs> I am. I need to know more. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what is this all about? What is, what, what is that? So um, that was my first foray into San Francisco history. And uh, it's been about 10 years, I guess, since I, I started it. And uh, tramping, of course, is one of the older terms for hiking. You know, you go out for tramps, you know. So that's really what that means. And I have a page on there about you know, what? what is this about tramps? Because there are certainly are other connotations <laughs> to tramps. Um, but it was basically tramping through the undiscovered or, you know, forgotten history of San Francisco. And uh, through that, it, it, there's just so many things about this city um, that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. And uh, a couple of things there I came across that, you know, uh, were were just so intriguing. But when I came across Glen Park history, uh, which was Glen Park in the Mission Zoo, I think was the first thing I found about it. It's like, oh, I think I'm hooked. <laughs> so that started the focus with the Glen Park Neighborhoods History Project. You wanna take the next one? Sure. You've also been a docent or volunteer at Muir Woods, the Mint, the Golden Gate Bridge's 75th birthday, and you wrote something called San Francisco's Coffee History. It does add up to a hill of beans. <laughs> we did a little research on you. Um, do all cities have such fascinating history, or is there something special about San Francisco and the Bay Area for a historian? I think there's something special here because of the gold rush and the, the, the different kinds of people who came out here to find success. They came to something that was undeveloped and opportunities were everywhere. And a lot of the people I've researched came out to find gold, but realized they could make more money selling stuff to gold seekers. And, uh, you know, I think you just get this range of new businesses uh, that, you know, it's still some of them are around today, like Folgers, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I, I just think the gold rush makes this a little bit more special here. Well, we've um, given you all our serious questions, and now it's time for a quick lightning round. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? <laughs> La Cornetta. That was a <laughs> What's your order? <laughs> yeah, what do you get? What's your order? 
Uh, has to be spinach tortilla, and I usually like carnitas. Uh-huh. Yep. Sounds good. Yep. What's your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Vertigo. What is your favorite small business in Glen Park? Uh, I'd have to say Bird and Beckett Books and Records. It's such a unique place. What's your favorite street in Glen Park? I'd have to say Chenery because it is just so historic. Named after uh, Richard Chenery, who was one of the early California pioneers. And, um, you know, it, it is a remnant of what was the original El Camino Real, mm-hmm. at least up to Diamond Street. Oh. So. And last question, what's one thing about the canyon you haven't told us yet? Uh, one thing about the canyon I haven't told you, well, it was almost going to be developed for low-income housing. Hmm. Uh, and uh, right about uh, the late 1930s, there was a plan because there was a shortage of low-income housing in San Francisco. And so they wanted to build 170 units here in the canyon. Uh, they got some funds from the federal government, got plans underway. World War II came around. When the war ended, prices had gone up so high uh, that they needed more funds, but there was more resistance than to developing it. And there was also resistance from neighbors mm. that they wanted to keep Glen Canyon as an open space. Mm-hmm. So, Great. Well, thank you so much for meeting us here. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And Flanny is a very good girl. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank very you. patient. And she thanks you. She's very patient. Thank you. <laughs> So our phone calls are still coming in on the Total SF party line, 415-777-7413. This week's caller has a call that is very close to my heart. I'm going to play it right now. Hi, Heather and Peter. Uh, This is George G. And I have a question. Uh, Very excited about the upcoming movie night. Um, I'll certainly try to get there. Uh, Peter, you were nice enough to buy me a beer at one point after one of these events uh, at Hockey Haven, and I look to return the favor. But uh, my question is this. Uh, in discussing San Francisco movies, Heather had such disdain for Star Trek Four, And I want to ask her, is it because she just doesn't like any Star Trek movies <laughs> at all? Can she name one that she likes? Thank you. So I thought that was a very good question from George. (laughs) What the hell is your problem with Star Trek? Where does this come from? I had a sinking feeling when you said the call was near and dear to your heart that it was going to be about Star Trek 4. And lo and behold, I was right. I don't like any sci-fi. I just don't like the genre. It's not my thing. I don't like spaceships. I've tried to watch your favorite movie twice, and I just can't pay attention. I space out or even fall asleep. Um, I don't like any Star Trek. I don't like any Star Wars. I don't like any of that stuff. I much prefer pretty much anything else, romantic comedies, thrillers, mysteries. Um, George, we still want to show Always Be My Maybe live um, soon, so you should come to that TBD on the date, and I will buy you a beer. Okay. I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Was there like a boyfriend who watched Star Trek who you didn't (laughs) like? Or did you have like some bad Star Wars experience? They're good films. And I will say Star Trek, like my wife, Kelly, did not like Star Trek, but my boys like it. 
Um, and even she acknowledges there's a really positive message. It's not always violent. There's often, you know, something thoughtful and something about that's positive about humanity. Saving whales. Who's against saving whales? So I just I'm wondering if there's something else there. <laughs> like if a psychiatrist got you on a couch, what would they like pick out of your brain about Star Trek? I do not have any childhood trauma related to Star Trek. Uh, I just don't like sci-fi. I've tried to watch your movie for you because we're friends. I think it's dumb. I haven't gotten into the characters. I really did not follow the whole Saving Whales plot. So sorry, there's nothing more to it. I just don't like it. Okay. Uh, I'm going to keep trying. This isn't over, <laughs> George. Thank you for the call. Uh, this will continue to be a theme on Total SF, but I'm glad we got to talk about it. I, I feel like while we are no closer together on Star Trek Four, at least we've had some dialogue now and it's something to build on. So I look forward to talking to you about this more, Heather. Okay. Well, in a future session, we should um, have a therapy session about why you don't like leaving the Bay Area. Okay, why well, I don't like traveling. That's good. We could just do an entire therapy episode. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for the question. Uh, we'd love to hear more. Give us a call if you have other questions. Uh, please leave your email if you do it. Um, that's the best way for me to get in contact with you. I do want to get in contact with everybody. And uh, great episode today. Thank you very much, Heather. Good job. Glen Canyon, I'll go there anytime you want. We will not be showing an outdoor screening of Star Trek Four in the Canyon. Okay, I will agree to that. Um, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Evelyn Rose. Thanks to our caller. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our music today is from the Sunset Shipwrecks, Castro organ player David Hegarty, and cable car bell ringing from eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by investing in a digital Chronicle edition. It's less expensive than you think at sfchronicle.com slash pod.